Okay, I'd like to begin tonight's talk with um, a little bit of historic info that I've always thought to be interesting. Uh, Once the English had colonized India and established their businesses, they yearned for recreation and decided to build a golf course in Calcutta. But golf in Calcutta proved to have a unique obstacle, which is that monkeys from nearby habitats would come onto the course and they'd scurry around and they'd seize the golf balls and they'd throw them all over. So the golfers first tried to control the monkeys by building these high fences around the fairways and the greens. But of course, if you know anything about monkeys, they climb. (laughs) Anyway, the next, the golfers tried to lure the monkeys away from the course, but the monkeys found nothing as amusing as watching humans go wild when their little white balls were disturbed. So in desperation, the British began trapping and relocating the monkeys. But monkeys have this familial thing. As soon as one's carted off, somebody sends out word and another appears. So finally, the golfers uh, gave into reality and they established a rather novel ground rule for that course, which is that golfers in Calcutta were obliged to play the ball wherever the monkey dropped it. (laughs) So you get the Dharma teaching in this one, right? This is... (laughs) Play the ball wherever the monkey drops it. There's an amazing wisdom, and in the basic teachings of the Buddha, the understanding is that when we're stressed, when the monkey drops the ball where we don't want it, which inevitably happens and happens a lot of the time, that's stress, we are rigged to react. And we're rigged to react immediately by, in some way, feeling that there's something going wrong and trying to resist what's happening or feel like we need something more and grasping on. Um, We react. And We can see, if we start scanning our lives, how often we think there's something not quite right about what's happening. We have a complaint or some notion it's not quite the way it's supposed to be a lot of the time. I mean, certainly, we watch the world, the globe, and we very deeply feel things are going wrong. And we have our reactions, whether it's to environmental degradation, our racism, our war, our the economy. And we know it very immediately in our personal lives that when a relationship gets shaky or falls apart or we lose our job security or, or we get sick and our, our bodies get sick or there's an addictive relapse, it feels like something's wrong. There's a reaction. So the big question, I think, and I talked about this some last week, that the Buddha asked, which is when we encounter the imperfections, like the inevitability of things not being the way we want them to be. How do we meet that? How do we respond? And just to say that in the most basic way, the Buddha was asking, when we encounter the inevitability that this body is going to get sick and die, and that everybody we love is going to get sick and die, when we encounter that, how is it that we are going to respond. Now I often use the metaphor of two arrows, which is in the Pali Canon, the Buddhist scripts, which says that the first arrow is this inevitability that it's sometimes really painful and we don't like it. And the second arrow is that we add on to the pain and discomfort 
this evaluation that something's wrong. And it usually has one of three forms. Either I'm wrong, this reflects on me being bad, or you're wrong, you're doing something wrong, or life sucks, life's wrong. You know, it's one of those three usually. <laughs> it's described, the Pali word is papancha, is that this chain reaction that not only is there an experience that's difficult, that the monkeys have dropped the ball in a place where we're physically sick or there's a loss around the corner, but the papancha the proliferation is we make something wrong about it and doesn't stop there. Then we act out of that sense of something's wrong in a way that's either uh, violent, aggressive, um, grasping, whatever. So attitude, in other words, our attitude when the monkey drops the ball in a place we don't like makes all the difference between being stuck in a trance, a reactive trance, and touching freedom in the midst of these lives, our attitude. And I'm going to talk about attitude tonight, really. What happens when it doesn't feel right, doesn't feel good, and what's the very next thing that happens? How do we make things wrong? The understanding is that when we're in reaction, when we've said, you're wrong, I'm wrong, life's wrong, when we're in reaction, we're in a trance. As soon as we start reacting, pushing away what's happening, trying to control things, we're in a trance and we're cut off from our wholeness, we're cut off from love, we're cut off from mystery, from goodness. Not only that, when we're in reaction, we're not able to respond to the suffering in this world from a wise place. So playing the ball where the monkeys drop it isn't about like lying down and becoming a doormat. It's about arriving in a truly radically accepting presence in that moment so we have the freedom to respond from wisdom. This is about activism or the grounds of activism. So when we first begin the papancha, when something goes off, and it's either something going wrong right now, supposedly, or something we anticipate, the mind starts spinning and we begin to worry and plan and try to control. And so the sign of papancha is controlling. And you know it when you're with somebody that's controlling. There's not intimacy and there's not enjoyment. Controlling. One of my favorite controlling stories is uh, the Colorado State Department of Fish and Wildlife advising hikers in the wilderness areas to beware of bears and uh, to wear noise-producing devices such as little bells on their clothing to alert but not startle the bears. They also advise carrying pepper spray in case of an encounter with a bear. It's also good to watch for fresh signs of bear activity. People should recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear droppings. Black bear droppings are smaller and they contain berries and possible squirrel fur. Grizzly bear droppings have little bells in them and smell like pepper spray. (laughs) Now, this isn't to say a certain amount of managing our lives isn't helpful, but when we get caught up in controlling, it doesn't really serve. So I want to um, spend some time with the most basic vehicle of papancha, of proliferation, which is obsessing, mental obsessing. 
And if I asked for a hand raise on how many of us feel like we obsess a lot, okay, let's do it, come on. (laughs) Our minds really go into all sorts of um, spins that are not so useful. And under all obsessing is fear. Under all obsessing is fear. And the attitude that goes hand in hand with fear is either something's wrong or about to go wrong. And it's either with me, you, or the world. Okay? I hope I'm saying that enough so we've got that all. That's our context here. Something's wrong. So let's break it down. Often, I'd say a lot of the time, the something's wrong very quickly the arrow goes in, there's some discomfort, and the something wrong is me. Very, very often. And I invite you to check that out because I find for myself that when I'm in a bad mood, when I'm feeling in some way irritable or unhappy or whatever, if I pause enough and tune in enough, I'm living with some belief or attitude that I've fallen short. That's, that's really strong. I know with many people, including myself, that when we get sick physically, um, the second arrow is something's wrong with me for getting sick. I didn't take care of myself well enough. This reflects badly on me. There's some shame with sickness. It's sad, but that's the case. There's shame with aging. Notice that. It's so interesting that, you know, there's just what every form on the planet does and probably other planets, and we have embarrassment. We personally take it as a kind of insult. Does that make sense? The older people here, those of us over whatever. So um, we get fatigued and we feel ashamed. We get depressed and we feel ashamed. So a lot of this anxiety about imperfection, when there's the first arrow of things don't feel good, we take it personally. Some of you that have been coming for a while might remember this. This is my, one of my favorite readings. Uh, it says, if you can start the day without caffeine or pepels if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably a dog. (laughs) But isn't it true, don't we have these standards and something goes off and it's very, very quick reflex, the papancha, the reflex, and this is the beginning of locking in trance, is this belief and feeling, something's wrong with me, I'm falling short. Now, we also go the other way and something happens and it's something's wrong with you. That happens a lot too, hence war. So with one friend of mine, she's describing how when she encounters difficulty in relationship or at work, very quickly there's an injustice and somebody else is the offender. She knows that there's her, she's got her own stuff going on, but that's where her mind goes. Others are, she's the victim and others are really causing trouble. We know it when our child doesn't cooperate, when they're not doing their schoolwork. There's this blaming because in some way we're afraid for their, for their happiness, but we're blaming. It's like something's wrong with you. 
One of the stories that some of you might remember is of a devoted wife spending her lifetime taking care of her husband. He's been slipping out in and out of coma for several months, but she stays by his bedside every single day. When he comes to his senses, he motions for her to come near him. As she sat by him, he said, You know what? You've been with me through all the hard times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you gave me support. When my health started failing, you were still by my side. Do you know what? What, dear, she asked gently. I think you bring me bad luck. (laughs) So... so, (laughs) Partly I'm playful with it because, you know, it's just so much a part of our conditioning... And this is true that our nervous system is designed for fight and flight and the very first thing we do when something goes off is we look for assigning blame because that's our way of being able to then control and deal with it. So that's the way the blame goes. But the most uh, deep level of it, and this is uh, the deepest sense of when we feel loss, when we feel like we're losing something that we cherish, is that blaming life, that life itself is bad or wrong or unjust or whatever it is. When it's extreme, when we're like immediately endangered and there's a threat of loss of life, then we go into trauma and we totally fixate on the sense of endangerment. That's when the monkeys have dropped the ball right near landmines. And so many people, because we go into that something's wrong with life feeling, our whole body, mind, chemistry's in it, and that's the beginning of PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. We're constantly feeling like the monkeys have dropped the ball by a landmine. Many, many people. I'm learning more, more about trauma and finding that the statistics of how many people have experienced trauma huge and how many people lock into this traumatic stress response where there's an ongoing sense that not only is something wrong, it's very, very wrong and we're on the brink of real threat and the nervous system's clutched and ready to, you know, have to either completely freeze or lash out or whatever. Huge numbers of people. One of the big signs is not just obsessive thinking, but really the kind of obsessive thinking that catastrophizes all the time. It's very unpleasant, it's very painful, and it's trance. So I'm speaking a bit to the suffering of this mental obsessing, that when we get caught in something's wrong with me, something's wrong with you, something's wrong with life, our body is in fight-flight. Now here's some of the suffering that comes out of that. The first is that we're cut off from really knowing who we are. In other words, our identity becomes hitched to the traumatized self or the endangered self or the wrong self or the victimized self. We live decade after decade in a small experience of who we are. And the mental narrative about it keeps it going the more moments we're blaming and believing the blame, in those moments we've locked ourselves into a small self. It prevents us, the more we tell ourselves a story of what's wrong, it prevents us really from the natural unfolding and realization that's possible in spiritual life. 
every moment that you reconfirm something's wrong with me blocks you from, from that natural radiance and goodness. Anthony DeMello, a Jesuit priest that died some years ago, uh, talked about how he had, as a younger man, been neurotic for years. He said, I was anxious and depressed and selfish. And like so many of us, he responded, you know, the monkeys would drop the ball on those feelings, and his response, his reaction was self-improvement projects. And then when nothing seemed to work, he was on the verge of despair. So he had this narrative, something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. And here's what he writes. He says, world stopped one day when a friend told him, oh, I missed one thing. One of the things that was most painful about his self-narrative of something's wrong with me is that his friends agreed. (laughs) They they kept telling him, yeah, you should change, you know. (laughs) They told him to be less self-absorbed. So anyway, his world stopped one day when a friend told him, don't change, I love you just as you are. Don't change, I love you just as you are. And those words kept going through him and through him and it kind of cut through that narrative of something's wrong. And he said, paradoxically, it was only when he received permission not to change that he felt free to change. Does that make sense? So we're in this trance, the monkey drops the ball in the place where we're sensing all this personal imperfection, okay? And it happens, we each keep bumbling around. And then we go into this mental narrative of I'm wrong, I've got to be better, I've got to fix myself. And we lock ourselves in to the trance of small self. In any moment that it's cut through with, okay, you know, imperfect, without anxiety about imperfection, it's okay. It frees us, it frees the natural love and wisdom to unfold itself. Okay, so the first way that I'm mentioning that the suffering of the obsessing is locking us into the trance of small and deficient self. The second suffering of this mental obsession that something's wrong is that it leads us to unwise action. When we're living in a body-mind state that something's wrong, our way of moving through the world is to create more separation. I think we can see it when we think of, in terms of um, our society, that I think back to 9-11 and how this, the papancha, the mental obsessing that was, you know, in the kind of larger sphere was of who the enemy was and instilling fear of the enemy and the enemy is Iraq, attack Iraq. In other words, we got into a shared mental obsession and that led us to violence that created more spiraling violence. And we see it still happening in military aggression all over the world. It's always stoked by fueling fear. Always. It's always stoked by creating an enemy, by demonizing an enemy. And this isn't a simplistic thing. We have real needs to protect. Just like if you go into the mountains and hike, you want to watch out for bears. But the point is that when we're living in the clench of something's wrong, we go into a mental obsessive mode that makes others bad and sets the ground for war. We can see it in our personal life that whenever we start obsessing, the actions that come out of that obsessing are not particularly wise. We move into chronic busyness so that we no longer have any space to come into presence and appreciation. 
The mental obsessing leads to addictive behaviors. It leads to numbing behaviors because we're so uncomfortable. Some of you might remember the story of a man and a woman sitting in a living room and he says, if I ever get into a vegetative state, you know, if I'm dependent on a machine, please pull the plug. At which point she gets up and pulls out the plugs of the TV. (laughs) So the obsessing... Remember that link that our thoughts create our behaviors and our behaviors create our character and it creates our destiny? This mental obsessing creates the behaviors that create separation from others and from ourselves. Now the third, okay, so we have the different sufferings. One is getting locked in the sense of a deficient self. The other is creating separation from others. And the third is the most basic. In the moments when you're obsessing, when something's wrong and there's worrying and planning, you're disconnected from the presence that's right here. There is no way to enjoy and inhabit the life that's right here. We're disconnected from the vastness and mystery of awareness and we're disconnected from love. Obsessing and love don't go together. So these are the... um, I mean, Chogyam Trungpa, I think, put it really beautifully. He said that when we're caught up in our fear thinking, it's like we're a bunch of tense muscles defending our existence. So the bottom line is that when we experience this life and make it wrong, when we're tensing against what's going to happen, and inevitably we're tensing against our own death and loss, we can't live this moment because we're busy tensing against what's to come. And that's what's so sad, is that in some way it's because we love aliveness that we're trying to protect it, but our very way of protecting it, our very obsessing, disconnects us from the source. So freedom, how does freedom happen? How do, we, how do we play the ball when it's difficult? And really the question is, how do we arrive in presence when the monkeys have dropped the ball in a place that's really hard for us? And in all the wisdom teachings, the answer has to do with awareness. It has to do with becoming aware of the mental obsessing, becoming aware that we're making something wrong, that evaluation or that attitude. And by the way, that's a critical piece. Aware that I'm making something wrong. Aware of the feelings that are underneath that until we become aware of the presence that's here. Because that's our refuge. So I'll give you an example. Part of what happens to me whenever I choose something... I want to speak on is that that whatever I'm reflecting on I get to um, explore it inside out and that's why I sometimes kind of joke around and say I don't do death talks too much but, <laughs> but it's all about that so, so anyway on Monday um, a very very dear friend of mine called me Monday morning and he said I've got bad news and he had just gone through extensive testing and um, he told me he had a diagnosis of a really disabling disease and he had five at the most ten years but it was going to be degenerative so he's really going to lose his life. So um, the monkeys had dropped the ball in a very painful place. 
And I watched through the day how I went in and out of reacting, on some level reacting, and, and my mind spinning, and with the undercurrent of this is wrong, to a more of a place of freedom in the midst. When I was in the mind spinning place, there's all these ripples and thoughts about, oh, he's not going to get to be a grandparent, and how are his family dealing with this, and, um, and how will they manage the loss, and my loss, you know, just thinking ahead about it, and then, did I show up right on the phone, you know, kind of went into, maybe I didn't show up enough for him, and so it was a lot about personal failure and impending loss, and my obsessing was I was trying to get my arms around it, I was trying to get used to the idea, and then I would see that, and I would see how there was this overall frame of something's terribly wrong, and then I'd deepen my attention, and I'd, I'd be aware of the thoughts of the future, and not try to eliminate them, but just keep arriving, okay, so what's the feeling right here? And it was grief. And the more I could step out of the thoughts about something's wrong and what's going to happen, the more there was an inhabiting of the purity of grief, which was also, the more I sat down in it, absolute love, absolute love. And so there was kind of just this loving presence there. And I'd swing back and forth, but the monkeys dropped the ball, and I could see how the attitude of, oh, something's terribly wrong, kept me from the love. Does that make sense? Later that evening, making dinner, and he calls again, and that day he had seen the top specialist in the field, and um, he had been told pretty categorically, I think, that he was misdiagnosed. I'm just feeling it right now because it's such a big deal, you know. He's given his life back. And so, again, I watched how that landed. The monkeys dropped the ball in a much nicer place, right? And so there's a part of me that's grasping, oh, my God, I can't believe this reprieve, you know. Can I trust this? Of course he's going to die, you know, that whole thing. And then, again, okay, just be with what's here. And it would just keep coming back to this awareness that cared, just loving presence. So the process, and we're going to practice it together as we always do. You've probably gotten used to that by now, right? <laughs> that we practice what we're talking about. The process of coming into presence when the monkey drops the ball in a difficult place, the process is to pause, to notice what's going on, the, the, the spinning of the thoughts, to notice the attitude, ooh, something's really wrong with me, with you, with life. And then to have the courage to just feel what's there, which often is fear or grief, to feel it, to be with it, and to discover the presence that really holds it all. Now, let me say that sometimes when there's really big trauma, when the monkey drops the ball in a place where somebody's been raped or attacked in some way, or is reliving experiences of having surgery and they're just feeling in some way being violated or whatever, it's not always so easy to pause and say, okay, spinning thoughts, let's be with what's here. In fact, it can be re-traumatizing. So there's a step before that, when there's trauma, when the monkeys drop the ball traumatically, to bringing awareness to where connection is. 
there's a saying that from the Buddhist teachings that our fear is great but the truth of our connection is greater still so if the monkey drops the ball in a place that's traumatizing we first bring our this is the in the the refuges, the three refuges, the refuge of sangha, our relatedness. A friend just handed this to me today. Ariel Vol, who works with newborns at a hospital in Barcelona, says that the first human gesture is the embrace. After coming into the world, at the beginning of their days, babies wave their arms as if seeking someone. Other doctors who work with people who have already lived their lives say the aged at the end of their days die trying to raise their arms. And that's it. That's all. No matter how hard we strive or how many words we pile on, everything comes down to this. Between two flutterings, with no more explanation, the voyage occurs. It's the voyage of realizing our belonging of realizing our belonging to this heart here and to each other and to life. So when traumatized, the first place to pay attention is to where that belonging might be. One friend of, the, of ours, a dear friend in this community, uh, today lost her father, 98 years old. Very, very close relationship. And she is reaching out to her friends with the wisdom of knowing that feeling that field of loving will help her to hold the pain of that loss. We remember the connection. We remember the connectedness. The gifts of being able to remember connection, come back to awareness, come back to presence, the gifts are profound. And you might just imagine for yourself if when things get really shaken up for you, any situation in your life right now, what would happen if you didn't buy into the overall frame that something's wrong? What if you instead approached it with tremendous curiosity and kindness? What is happening right here? On one level what we find out when we stop making things wrong is that if we open to what's here, what we're opening to is the pain of loss. That over and over again, one person described the whole spiritual path as opening to the reality of losing. So that what happens when we stop making things wrong, rather than fighting, resisting, getting depressed, getting anxious, we feel the natural grieving for, for what's happening. This is the well of grief. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. When the monkeys drop the ball in a place that has to do with loss, when we get fixated on wanting it different, we miss out on loving. So that's one level of the gift when we learn to stay with what's happening rather than react and and resist and blame. The second level 
is what I call the more absolute level, is that we discover that what we're wanting is already here. That where the monkey dropped the ball, if we bring a great presence, we discover the absolute freedom of our own awareness and heart. Story about Kafka, when he was an older man. He spent time sitting in a park, and one day a little girl walked by him, tears running down her face. He asked her to stop and tell him what's wrong, and she said that she was missing her doll, that her doll was lost. And so he offered to look around and tried to find the doll, but he couldn't. And he said to the little girl, come on back and I'll see if I can find her. So a few days later, the little girl returns and Kafka's there, no doll, but he has a note. And the note reads, I've gone off to travel some around the world. Please don't worry about me, I'm fine. <laughs> so the girl's somewhat relieved. She... <laughs> She returns to the park every week or so, and each time Kafka's there with another note from the doll. And the girl's too young to read, so he reads to the little girl telling her of the doll's adventures. Okay? Sometime later, Kafka, much sicker, went to the park one last time, and this time he had brought a doll, and he handed it to the girl, and he told her the travels had really changed her. (laughs) Anyway... um, Some years later, when the girl was a young woman, she found and read a note that had been rolled up and placed in the doll's hand. You will lose everyone you love, but the love will always return in new forms. The deep understanding in that story and really in the the teachings of the Buddha are that Everything that takes form dissolves, disappears, loses its form. But that there is a timeless presence that's really what we are. And if we can take refuge in that truth, in this presence, in this love that's what we are, then we'll experience that loving connectedness with everything that arises and passes away. It'll be a part of our heart. So... We're going to just take a a few moments to practice together, really, how it is that when we're experiencing a sense of failure or loss, we can take refuge in presence. And as you're doing, just to sit in a way that lets you come into stillness and let the attention go inward. And in the space of a pause, right this moment, as you let your attention go inward, just sense what's happening inside you. Just notice the sensations and aliveness of the body. Maybe relax a little more so that you can feel more fully your experience. Be aware of the sounds around you. And then including in your attention a sense of your life right now and where in your life you might 
feel that the monkeys have dropped the ball in a place that's difficult. It might have something to do with your own health or another's, with how your children or parents are doing, how a relationship is going, finances. Just sense whatever difficult circumstances might be there. Allow yourself to get in touch with what makes them difficult. What's the worst part of what's going on? And see if you can sense the attitude or way that you're regarding this set of circumstances. Is there a interpretation that in some way you're falling short? That you're failing in some way? Is there an interpretation or a belief that somebody else is doing something wrong? Or is it that in some way life is bad, that there's some loss that's bad that's happening? just with an honest kind of investigation, just noticing the attitude that's holding this experience. And if you could step out of the stories of what's wrong What is the actual experience in your body and heart that's here in relationship to this set of circumstances? For some it helps to put hand on the heart and just sense that you're offering a very kind presence to what's actually going on inside you, whether it's fear or grief, If you didn't add the idea of something's wrong and you just felt the pure experience of what the felt sense is about this experience.
sense that you're offering a very pure presence to the part of you that's in some way hurting or afraid, perhaps grieving. If you're touching your heart, you might sense that you're just sending a caring presence right to the place inside that's upset. out beyond any idea of something being wrong, just pure presence with what's here. You might wonder who you'd be if you didn't believe something was wrong with you or with another person or with your life? Who would you be? When there's no resistance to how it is, what's your experience of being? Can you just become the space, a tender space that it's happening in? For these last few moments you might sense that whatever you're experiencing in some way, energetically, there's a yes, yes to this. And trust that when you truly say yes, just as Anthony DeMello discovered, it frees you to respond and change this and be in this world in a compassionate and intelligent way. But yes to the moment, right here. If you're tired, yes to the tiredness. If you're confused, yes to the confusion. If you're angry, yes to the anger. If you're numb, yes to the numbness. Yes to the sounds that are playing through our awareness. Yes to the moods that are playing through our heart. In this choiceless, never-ending flow of life, there is an infinite array of choices. One alone brings happiness to love what is. For each of us, there are experiences when life's not cooperating. Our freedom comes in how we relate. If in any moment you can pause and come into the presence that's allowing what's happening, you can respond from wisdom and compassion.
We close with the prayer of loving kindness. May all beings realize loving kindness as their very essence. May all beings live from loving kindness. May loving kindness spread and ripple out that there be peace on earth, that all beings may be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.